You are now listening to the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. As always, I am your host, Daniel Lee, or follows by DLEE. Today, we're going to talk about, or go into more detail anyway, about camera features, explain them a bit, and talk about, you know, what they do, if they matter, that kind of thing. Some news stories, as always, and personal updates, what I've been up to. First one is kind of embarrassing to say, probably wondering why, which, you know, you'll probably be able to tell. So last fortnight, I mentioned how I bought a new lens, the Sigma 16mm f1.4. This week, I am now selling that, or this fortnight, I am now selling that lens. Now, you know, that's, I'd say that's a really bad case of gas. I don't know if I can go back on my yearly thing by saying, you know, I'm selling it because, you know, then I don't have it. But yeah, I'm, I'm selling the lens. So it's not that it's a bad lens. There's nothing wrong with the lens. Like, I actually really like the lens. It's more just, I need money. So I'm getting married later in the year. And, you know, obviously every cent, every dollar counts. So I have to be more cautious with my spending. I've noticed that my PC, which is now five years old, you know, the GPU has slowed down quite a bit. And after a power outage one day, you know, I had some certain issues. So I feel like I need to replace the PSU and my GPU, my graphics card and my power supply unit. The, I, I feel like it kind of did happen in a decent time because of, you know, prices. If you're into PCs, into gaming, that kind of stuff, graphic cards, at least here in Australia, are dropping quite a bit. So cards that were originally like a GTX or RT, sorry, RTX 3080, if you look at the third-party ones, you know, like the Asus Strix ones, they were going for as high as 2500 2800 AUD. Now they've dropped, the same cards have dropped to about 1400 It's like crazy how much they are. So I've actually ordered the RTX 3070 Ti and the Asus one, the Strix one, because originally I was going to get the tough card, you know, which is more of a sort of budget card or standard card, you know, whereas the Strix is the highest end one. And originally it was much cheaper for the tough card. It was about three, four hundred dollars cheaper. Whereas once these price drops started, the price difference was only forty dollars. Now I believe you know, obviously, better cooling, better build, better components, supposedly on the Strix, as well as a better base clock and that kind of stuff. So you know, you will get better performance out of it. So I got that, but because I'm upgrading the graphics card, you know, also the PSU does seem to be playing up. Well, that's my justification anyway. If you ask, if my girlfriend asks, that is playing up. <laughs> it actually is, but anyway, you know. Because that is a higher-end graphics card, I need more power. Uh, my current power supply isn't enough, so that's why I have to upgrade that as well. It will future-proof me for a while, so I'm pretty happy about that. I was going to go ahead and replace everything, but currently, you know, I don't feel there's a need. So back to the original point, that is generally why I've decided to sell the Sigma 16mm and the Sigma 56mm as well. Two lenses, especially the 56, I really, really, really love, but I'm just not using my camera recently. And... I have this bad habit of if I don't use it for a certain amount of time, I just want to sell everything. I did that with my a lot of my uh, Sony gear as well. My Tamron 28-75 it was a beautiful lens, amazing lens. I loved it, but I just wasn't using it. So I sold it, simple as that. And it's coming to that with the EFM mount. So aside from that, you know, that I'm not using it and I'm going to use the money from that to fund my PC upgrades, I'm actually thinking of selling off all my EFM gear. So... I was originally going to sell it all now, but now I'm just selling it in stages. So for now, I'm going to be selling the two Sigma lenses. Then eventually I'm going to sell maybe in a few months time, maybe a bit later, 
the EFM 32mm f1.4. I really love that lens. So that lens would be a bit hard to get rid of, but regardless, you know, it's going to go. And then maybe later in the year, I'm thinking around September, October, then I'll get rid of the M50 Mark II and the 22mm, my favorite combo. Main reason I'm keeping them for that long is because I realize, you know, even if I want to get Fuji, Sony, there's nothing that actually matches the combo of the M series body along with the 22mm. It's practically like a fixed lens camera. If you look at the Fuji X100V, which is something I've been looking at a lot, even that is, you know, it's more, it's quite a bit, significantly more expensive, I'd say, especially if you don't get it on a good sale. It's slightly longer, but not taller from what I know. And I think the weight's a bit more, but you know, it, that 22mm and M50 is such a great combo. And I have a WWE event later this year in Sydney. From what I can tell, they will let cameras in, but only up to a certain size, which from what I can tell that I'm saying that a lot, the M50 plus the 22mm pretty much perfectly fit what they will allow in. And you know, the image quality is decent as well, much better than you'll get on a phone, especially in a dark area like that. So because of that, I need a camera. I was realized if I sold everything, I could literally afford the Fuji X100V, but there's just a few things I'm not completely sold on about it. It does look image quality, everything, an amazing camera. But number one, I'd really love IBIS. That's one of the things that sort of annoys me about the M50 now. After being so used to having IBIS on the R6, which I think has really, really, you know, it's much better on the R6 than it was on the A7, from my, you know, perspective anyway. That is one major thing. And also because there's no fully articulating screen. And from what I can see, I believe it came out in 2020 and there was about a three-year gap between the other ones. So I'm guessing there may be a, whatever the next sequel would be called to it next year. So I don't really want to go because I'm hoping it may have IBIS and a fully articulating screen. If that's the case, I would happily buy it. But right now I would much prefer a Fuji XS10, but there's no sort of pancake lens that I know of anyway. A small, really small 22 millimeter that would be equal in size to the Canon EFM lens. So that's where my dilemma comes in. I already know what my kit would be with the Fuji, would be the something a bit wider. I'd have to figure out what, maybe the Sigma, maybe not. Otherwise it would be the 33mm f1.4. Some people will say it's pricier, the 1000 AUD, but I think it's worth it for what it does. And then probably the Sigma 56. And even so, like it's a bit too similar. I think I'd probably be better off going with a 22 1.4 if they have one. So that way I got 35 and like an 85 combo would work out a lot better. But you know, when that comes to the time, then I'll figure out what to do about those. Otherwise, for now, I'm just focusing on selling them, getting the money to pay for my PC upgrades. And then later on, I can see what comes out. Maybe Boxing Day sales can reward myself and get something. But yeah, for now, it'll be like that. The only one other thing is I don't really look at the analytics that much. So for this podcast, even if you ask me, I don't know how many subscribers I have. I would guess maybe 100 or a bit more just as a guess based on listens, but you know, engagement rates, not always the same as how many subscribers you see people with hundred thousand subscribers, but when they get like a few thousand views, either way, I decide to look, you know, I checked iTunes connect from what I can tell based on my podcast host, which is someone completely different. I believe most people listen through RSS feeds. So, you know, they just load my feed directly into their podcast app, which makes me believe they listen on Android, not on iOS. Just my guess. What I'm getting to is I did have a look into the analytics. I didn't even realize this podcast had a review since last year. So I just want to say thank you to KiwiFuel. I know a few few of you have reached out to me before. I know obviously Joey, you know, as I always talk about him, he we're good friends in real life. So, you know, I know him. Uh, there's a few others of you that have reached out for questions, advice, that kind of stuff. So 
I'd like to thank you as well. You know, that reach out, that kind of stuff is what helps me continue to keep going with this podcast. And yeah, I managed to see that there was a review for this podcast by a Kiwi Fuel. So whoever you are, Kiwi Fuel, we may have spoken before, but either way, I really appreciate that the fact that, you know, you gave us that review. And Andreas as well, you know, you've reached out for quite a few questions as well. Thank you very much. You know, all of you, anyone that's reached out to me, chat to me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So yeah. Otherwise, now onto the news. So Canon is to launch 32 new RF lenses before 2026. So as part of Canon's annual financial results presentation, the company's chairman and CEO, Fujio Matari, has explained some strategies going forward, including the plan to release lenses at a pace with current production, at their current production with the next several years. So Canon's graphics shows the plan to expand the lens lineup at the same pace that it has already established over the last two years. And given that Canon announced eight lenses between 2020 and 2021, that can be, you know, extrapolated to mean the company will release at least eight new lenses every year throughout 2025, or at least 32 new RF lenses over the next four years. So obviously this is a huge amount of lenses. Their lens library will practically be very, very well fleshed out and very full if they do manage to keep that up. So by 2026. You know, you could go crazy. I could spend the whole episode, the whole, you know, hours talking about all the lenses I'd love to see. I assume we'd see very similar, if not, you know, close versions of all their R, so EF lenses that were more popular, especially the newer ones. So like an R version of the 11 to 24, I think it was, that kind of stuff. I'd love to see 8514, 5514, 3514, as well as the 1-2. There's so many different zooms. I want a more lower end zoom so you have the 14 to 35 i would love another 16 to 35 that lens was amazing i used it so much when i went to san francisco it was actually used more than my 28 to 75 i found 16 to 35 suited my style a lot more there if they did a 16 to 35 f 2.8 i don't think there's a need because the 15 to 35 covers that but i know having that 16 to 35 2.8 that i had in new zealand when i was shooting sony that one was amazing but yeah, there's so many possibilities, so many options, could spend ages endless talking about it. But I just hope Canon release some really good lenses. They don't have to technically be L lenses, but we need something that's sort of in between that gap of L and budget. You know, if you look back at the EF line, you had lenses like the 100L, the 135L, 17-40L, 16-35L. All these lenses were actually very fairly priced, but offered amazing performance. The 16 to 35 f4L still probably could, you know, hold its own against many newer, better lenses. It's sharp usually throughout the whole range. is amazing lens for the size, the weight. If it wasn't so overpriced right now, I would rebuy it. And why I say overpriced is when I originally bought mine, it was I got it on sale for a thousand AUD. At the moment, it's selling for about sixteen to eighteen hundred AUD, which is way more than it should be charging. So that's why I call it overpriced. It, and may not be the same in the US or other markets, Europe, Asia, but here it is heavily overpriced and I would not pay that much for a lens that I paid only $1,000 for before. Otherwise, you know, I still have my adapter so I could consider getting it, but yeah, not going to happen anytime soon. So next, so Irix 21mm f1.4 has been announced for Canon EF, Nikon F and Pentax, Pentax K-mounts, so all your DSLRs. So as I mentioned, it's been announced for them. This lens is based on a 21mm T1.5 cinema lens the company announced in February. This lens is manual focus only, constructed of 15 elements in 11 groups. Distortion is very well minimized to the degree that it is not visible. Irix says that the lens is therefore ideal for photographing subjects 
where distortion can ruin an image, even with architecture. So no, even like with architecture, you know, something's very off, stretched too far, that kind of stuff. Chroma is minimized, which allows the use the lens to be used for astrophotography as well. Eleven, it has an eleven-bladed diaphragm, which Irix says provides a unique bokeh despite the wide focal length. It uses the dragonfly construction, which means it has reinforced internal structure based on metal parts, a scratch-resistant lens finish, anti-skid sharpening ring, which I, I'm not even going to begin to make a joke about that, but engraved marking field with UV reactive ink, water and dust resistance, and an included rigid carrying case. The lens also has Irix's focus lock feature, lock feature, which allows the photographer to lock the focusing ring in a specific position. If you can't tell, I'm still laughing about that skid part. I'm just like, I'm the giant, biggest man-child there is. I will laugh at anything and make the stupidest joke. So apologize for that. So the lens does include a digital connection to the camera as PASM. So your program, auto shutter and manual modes are supported and EXIF data can be recorded. It can be used with mirrorless cameras via adapters, obviously your EF to RF, Z, Z to whatever, F to FX to Z mount adapter and available immediately from IREX directly for 675 euros or about 745 US dollars. No idea for Australian dollars prices. Must have been on, in the works for a while. That's why they decided to use all DSLR mounts rather than making this sort of more like a mirrorless lens. Regardless, if you have a DSLR, maybe this is something you want. It's quite a fast aperture if it doesn't have coma. And you know, what they say is indeed true. I'm sure it would be great for an astro lens. 21 millimeters, not super wide, but it is decently wide. Otherwise, even if this was a mirrorless lens, not the type of lens for me personally, but maybe it was on 18 millimeters, I'd be good with it. But yeah, not something I'd be looking for personally. Next up, Yongnuo 85mm f1.8 announced for Nikon Z mount in China. So Yongnuo has announced a new autofocus quip YN 85mm f1.8 for Nikon Z mount cameras in China. That is very inexpensive given the performance the company promises photographers can expect. The lens was announced on the Yongnuo Weibo account. Weibo? I think, I as I mentioned, them. I don't just butcher the Japanese names. I can't uh, pronounce the Chinese stuff as well, even though being half Chinese. The lens is 68mm by 89mm long, weighs 405 grams and has 58mm front filter size. Yongnuo says it's also suitable for both photo and video work and designed specifically for Nikon Z-mount cameras where full digital connectivity is supported. The lens is constructed of 9 elements in 8 groups, 7 bladed aperture and dust and water resistant has autofocus and manual focus functionality via stepping motor that Yongnuo claims to be fast and quiet. I don't know about the quiet part. I don't feel like stepping motor and quiet go in the same sentence, but I haven't used the lens, so I can't say. The lens also has a programmable function key, which I, you know, is becoming more and more common, which is good to see. And the Yongnuo F1.8 also has a control ring that is integrated with the manual focus ring. So at the time of publication, the Yongnuo Lens is only available in China where the company says it can be purchased for 2,199 won or about 347 US dollars. And it's not clear if this lens will end up becoming available in the West and other countries. For me personally, you know, this, especially if you're shooting on Nikon, this is way more budget than compared to what the Nikon Z lens could do. I don't know. I'm not really sold on the image quality of this lens. It does seem a bit soft. I don't know if it's just the way that it renders the images and it's not so much that the lens itself is soft, but I don't, 
for me personally, I would much prefer the type of lens like a Nikon Z. I don't know if the Viltrox one that you can get is very good for Nikon, but I don't think this would personally be an option for me. I would rather go something else, but yeah. You know, someone, if they just want to try out an 85mm lens to see if they like the focal length, this is sort of a cheap kind of throwaway lens depending on, you know, your budget. So it could be worth it. The last story for the news is Venus Optics Lauer Argus 25mm f0.95 announced for Micro Four Thirds. So the company says that the shell depth of field creates a dreamy background defocus and the APO design limits color, color, color fringing. The manual focus lens features an all-metal build, weighs 1.25 pounds, and the company claims the aperture and focus rings have deep grooves that make for better handling. The lens is constructed of 14 elements in 8 groups. It features an aperture range of 0.95 to f11 through a 9-bladed diaphragm. It has minimum focusing distance of 9.8 inches, which is quite big, and a maximum magnification of 0.17 times, a front filter thread of 62mm, and an angle of view of 46.7 degrees. So it's available to purchase today, right away. For $400 in the United States, the company says that this pricing is different in countries and it will vary. So check the company's website or authorized dealers for the specifics. Once again, these third parties, they manage to knock out lenses like there's no tomorrow, which is impressive. But I guess, you know, they don't spend as much time. This is just purely a guess. I feel like they don't spend as much time or effort on the designs. That's why they're cheaper and that's why they can push them out. Whereas if you look at someone Nikon, Canon, Sony, Fuji, they're more likely to spend three, four years. Even Sigma have said they spend about two to three years designing a lens. So, you know, a lot of testing, a lot more R&D goes into it. And of course, a lot more costs. And that's why it gets passed on to the end user. We get to, you know, get charged more. But at the end result, we do get better lenses. So, you know, it's up to you which one you prefer. So that is on it for the news. On to the main topic. Now, I know, you know, there's probably people who listen to this podcast might listen to a fun. There's people on all different levels. And, you know, some, I've got no clue. I feel like there could be some beginners who don't really know as much about cameras or what their features are and that. So I thought I would just do this main, this topic on, you know, different camera features and what they mean and whether they're actually, you know, are something you should care about. Obviously, you know, you may know quite a bit of this, but hopefully you may, even if you do know quite a bit of it, there may be something you didn't know and that you do learn. So yeah, otherwise what I'm going to do is I'm just look through the specs of a camera and I've taken note of, you know, what majority of the main specs that sort of require a bit more explanation are. So I figured, you know, I could go into it like this way rather than just read some camera specs and just sort of go off at the top of the head. So the main one and, you know, what you could say is the heart, the main part of a camera is its sensor. Now, camera sensors, they come in different sizes. For medium format, it does, there's no real set size for medium format. They can vary quite a bit. But, you know, the most common or most, I'd say, affordable one that you may be able to get, you know, is the Fuji XF line, their medium format, which they have a sensor size of 43.8 millimeters by 32.9 millimeters. And I believe a lot of their sensors are around 50 megapixels. So because of their larger sensor size compared to full frame, but, you know, their average pixel count, not average, but, you know, it's a high pixel count, but because the actual surface space is larger, you know, you have larger pixels, which let more light in. So I'll have an explanation for this. So what I'll do is I'll go through the sizes first. And then you have full frame cameras, which are generally 35 millimeters by 24. Occasionally you'll get a slight variation in this. I believe the Canon 6D was only like 34 and a half or 34.9. 
it was that tiny bit under full frame, but it was considered full frame. But yeah, generally that is your, what you would get, you know, what your size for full frame is. Then you have all your APS-Cs. So there's different sizes for APS-Cs. You have, from what I can see, I don't know if it's 100% accurate from what I can see online, but Nikon and Sony use a 25.1 millimeter by 16.7 millimeter sensor. And then Fuji also have a, have a 23.5 by 15.6 millimeter sensor. Now with these sensors, it is a bit different. So obviously full frame is generally considered like the standard, you know? So when you look at the APS-C lens, like a 50 millimeter, you're usually timing it by whatever the crop factor is. So with Nikon, Sony, and Fuji, it's a 1.5 times crop factor. So pretty much if you have a 50 millimeter lens, you're timesing it by 1.5 to get what the equivalent focal length. So it's technically still a 50 millimeter lens, but because the sensor is smaller, you're seeing a smaller part of the image. So that's why we go through that crop. Now with Canon, their sensors, their APS-C are generally 22.2 by 14.8. So they have a 1.6 times crop factor. So, you know, say you got a 11 millimeter lens, you times it by 1.6 or 22, you know, 1.6 would be 35 sort of thing. So that's why you find um, certain manufacturers make lenses in certain focal lengths. So for example, the Sigma 56 millimeter lens, it was designed mainly for Sony, I believe. Sony and uh, I think, I can't remember what other brand it was, L-Mount, but that one was a 56 millimeter. So it may sound a bit strange, 56, but when you times it by 1.5, it's practically 85 millimeters. So when you use it on Canon, because it's 1.6, it's more around 19, 90 millimeters, sorry. So that's where all that comes in. Now, there's a big debate, you know, over whether sensor size matters, you know, that kind of stuff. Me personally, I believe when you're in good light at ISO 100, you won't really notice as much of a difference. They can all be, you know, very good in that sort of light. It's more when you're in lower light, that's when you really notice the advantage of a larger sensor. Now, I believe it was Kai Wong of Digital Rev that explained it this way. And I felt like it was really good the way he explained it. So I'm sure you're all familiar with what noise is. If we shoot at a high ISO, there's more noise, more grain looking sort of digital noise. If you think of the sensor as like a room, so say you have a 10 meter room and a five meter room, the 10 meter room is full frame, the five meter room is APS-C. So if you put 10, 10 people in the larger room, the full frame room, and then you put 10 people in the APS-C room, the noise will seem a lot louder in the small room because there's less space for it to sort of, you know, bounce around kind of thing. Whereas in the bigger room, it won't sound as loud because there's more space. So that's the exact same as with sensors, the larger the sensor, there's more space for it. So if you look at the 24 megapixel sensor on both full frame and Sony and APS-C, and you know, micro four thirds as well will be even smaller, which usually has a two time crop factor. The smaller the sensor, the more it's each pixel, the smaller each pixel has to be. And the smaller the pixel, the less light it can absorb, which creates more noise at higher ISOs. The bigger the pixel, the more light it absorbs, the less, the cleaner it is, which is why, you know, medium format usually considered the best the high end, or I think it's large form as well. I don't know anything much about full frame, honestly, so it'd be a bit stupid for me to really talk too much about it when I don't know what I'm talking about. But that's generally sensor size. So next up will be megapixels. So this one is another controversial topic that, you know, a lot of people think a 20 megapixel camera or a 16 megapixel camera is useless in this modern day and age. You have to have at least 30 plus megapixels. But honestly, look at what you do with your images. If all you do is post to Instagram, then pretty much Instagram is about 1.17 megapixels. Each image on there is literally not even two or three megapixels. 
So because of that, why do you need 40, 50 megapixels when all you're going to do is export it down to two megapixels? Honestly, there's no difference. The same goes if you like to print. How big do you like to print and how often? A 20 megapixel sensor will honestly print plenty of, you know, enough for you. It is not limiting in any way. The only area that people could maybe say that those that like to shoot and then crop significantly, which, you know, I've covered before. I personally don't agree if I reckon you're better off getting the shot in camera. It's the same as exposed, not even caring about exposure and just fixing it all in post. Give black image, shoot everything as a pure black, pure white screen and just be able to recover it in post. There's no challenge to it. There's no skill. That's my opinion on it. But yeah, sort of that's how it is. For me, as I said, megapixels does not matter. Unless you're printing billboards, I honestly don't think you need to. Every day there's more and more software like Gigapixel AI from Topaz Labs. That one, you can upscale the image, which does a really good job. I've tried on two and four times. But yeah, if you give that a try, you can do that and then crop after and it would just be like having a higher megapixel sensor. Next up is IBIS and IS. So I see a lot of people say that it doesn't really matter for stills photography, but I disagree. Like if you have IBIS, it helps you hold the camera at certain angles. So say you want to do a top-down angle of something. Having IBIS, you don't have to worry so much about your shutter speed. You can still drag the shutter a lot more while holding it in a position that you may not be able to hold it as steady and not have to worry about tripods or some other thing to hold. And the same goes for IS. It pretty much does the same. So if you, if I didn't explain IBIS, in-body image stabilization, it can be a bit of a different term depending on what brand you shoot. But otherwise, yeah. They're both very useful and IS, you know, lens image stabilization. They both do help you for both stills and video, regardless of which one you're shooting. And they're definitely something that's really worth investing in. Because if you have IBIS, for example, you don't need to worry about whether the lens has IS or not because you're already covered. Next up is shutter type. So obviously when you shoot with a camera, so there's different types of shutters that you have. So the three types you'll generally come across, especially in this day and age, and especially with mirrorless cameras, is mechanical, electronic first curtain shutter, and a fully electronic shutter, sometimes referred to as silent shutter. So the first one, mechanical. So with a mechanical shutter, it's closing of a blind or blades which blocks the light. So if you think about it, the sensors exposed and then the shutter is closed. So when you're taking the photo, the shutter is opening and then closing, and which is allowing light to pass the sensor. So if, if you're shooting at one, one four thousandth of a second, it's going to be extremely fast, you know, to open and close to let that light in. Whereas if you're shooting for a second, it'll open wait that second and close again. So that's pretty much what the mechanical shutter is doing, which, you know, is your exposure. This is generally, you know, the standard mode. Some cameras will come on that as default. I know some cameras now technically come on EFCS, electronic first curtain shutter, as a standard. The only real drawback is this, you know, at slow shutter speeds, you can notice sometimes the vibrations of the shutter slapping. Uh, there's noise, obviously you can hear mechanical shutters. They're getting a lot more quiet now. If Canon, for example, their mechanical shutters are near silent. Not near silent, but they're very, very, very quiet compared to how they used to be. So if you're trying to capture a candid moment, you know, baby sleeping, that kind of thing, and don't want to disturb the environment and that, some people may be able to hear that. And of course, you know, obviously because it's a mechanical part, it can wear out over time. You'd eventually have to get that replaced. I've read multiple different things about how much it would cost. I think it does depend on the model, but it's not a huge amount, maybe 400 bucks. If you've bought an expensive camera, five, six grand camera, that $400 to make the camera like new again probably doesn't seem like much and it would definitely be worth it. The next is electronic first curtain shutter, which is my personal favorite. So instead of both using both curtains of the shutter, you know, like mechanical parts opening up and close, 
the sensor itself scans the sensor to begin the exposure. So, you know, the start, the first curtain, rather than it be a mechanical, it's all in a shutter. And then the second curtain is an actual physical shutter, closing curtain moving across the sensor. So with this one, because there's one less mechanical part moving, it can actually reduce vibrations, which, you know, often helps if you're shooting at very low shutter speeds handheld, that along with IBIS. It can also affect one of the negatives. It can affect the quality of the bokeh. You can have it cut off and some other facts in it. But that only seems to happen if you're using fast lenses, you know, your f1.2, f1.4s at over 1 1,000th of a second. Under that, you're very unlikely to see any issues, which you could use pretty much all the time. And yeah, I use this mode 90% of the time. This is my standard. And in all honesty, I even use it over 1 1,000th of a second because I haven't been able to really see the difference myself. So I never bothered. Plus, I never really have f1.4 lenses that can reach that 1 1,000th second. So that's why, yeah, I never really bother. Last but not least is the fully electronic shutter. So no mechanical parts are used for this and is controlled by the sensor itself. The main type is a rolling shutter which scans across the image plan, usually from top to bottom. So the issue with this is the slower the more the slower it reads, the more rolling shutter which can show warping in the image. So what that means is say a cyclist is riding along and you're panning along trying to keep track of them. And then as you do that, if the electronic readout is too slow, certain straight objects will look like they're on an angle. So you look at light poles, they'll be in an angle, that kind of stuff. This is starting to become less of a thing. With your high-end bodies, your Nikon Z9, your Canon R3, your Sony A1, they're starting to be able to shoot in electronic shutter with no banding, which is, you know, from artificial lighting. And there's also no rolling shutter issues either. So eventually once this tech becomes, you know, easier to make and cheaper to make, we'll get to see this in our lower end cameras. So eventually you could just technically shoot an electronic shutter and electronic first curtain and there won't even really be a need for a mechanical shutter, which I believe the Nikon Z9 doesn't even have a mechanical shutter. So as the other type of electronic shutter as well, I should mention is a global shutter. So it illuminates all pixels at the same time rather than certain ones at a time, you know, like a wave. So this obviously would mean none of that issues with warping and rolling shutter. And I don't believe there's any main DSLR or mirrorless camera that has a global shutter at the moment. I know Sony have constantly been, you know, Canon, everyone's sort of working on making that kind of shutter because whoever makes it in a commercial camera at a higher megapixel sensor will be, you know, very, very popular. But otherwise, yeah, it hasn't come to fruition yet. ISO, I'm sure everyone knows what ISO is. It's the lower the sensitivity. You know, ISO 100, it's less sensitive to light. So it gets you a much cleaner image. The higher the ISO, the more sensitive it is to light, but the more digital noise you get. Very straightforward. You want to be shooting at as low as ISO as possible to get the shot. Next up is metering modes. Now, these are quite different depending on whether you shoot Sony, Nikon, Canon. Obviously, because I shoot Canon, it's easiest. I understand them a bit more, so I'm going to go over them. But they're generally very similar among camera brands. They may have a different name for Sony or Nikon, but they generally do the same things. The first one for Canon is center-weighted average. So center-weighted average metering is like using evaluative metering with a center AF point. It places greater emphasis on the center area while also taking metering across the entire frame. As this metering algorithm places greater emphasis on the center area when calculating an average exposure value to use, it is particularly useful for scenes with subjects located in the center of the frame. So imagine taking a portrait and it's quite sunny in the background. So it would mainly focus on your subject but it will also kind of take into 
you know, consideration what's going on in the background when telling you what exposure to use. So when it comes to evaluative, so most common mode and default mode, it takes a series of readings and zones that cover the entire frame and then calculates the overall average exposure value. Since evaluative meaning takes into account the entire frame when determining the exposure, it is useful for low contrast subjects, uh, such as when shooting from front lighting or low contrast landscape. So yeah, this is the main one pretty much everyone uses. I don't think many people I know I barely touch the metering modes. You're pretty much reading the whole center and finding out what the best exposure is rather than just a certain area. Now partial. Partial metering covers only the center 6.2% of the frame in the viewfinder, thus providing precise metering only for the subject. When the background is brighter than the subject due to reasons like backlighting, the metering mode is particularly useful. It is useful for backlit shots or tiny subjects. Pretty self-explanatory. You've got a subject in a backlit scene. You want them to be perfectly exposed. Don't care so much about the background. Switch to partial if you need the manual modes to be able to tell. For spot metering, so spot metering only covers the center 1.5%, so much smaller of the frame in the middle in the viewfinder. The percentage varies a bit depending on cameras as well, and is thus more precise than partial metering. This mode only takes a reading of a certain spot, usually your main center, you know, back, I don't know how it works with mirrorless, but back in DSLRs, it would be your center point, the most accurate point. So yeah, it would read from that scene, spot metering is useful when there is a large brightness difference between the subject and background, for example, when taking photos of a spotlighted performer on stage, sunset, or sunrise. So that's pretty much it for metering modes. Hopefully that explains those well. So next up is continuous shooting. So obviously this, you're shooting in bursts. So continuous, your frames per second, that sort of stuff. So say you're shooting sports, if you want the higher chances of being able to get an image in focus or birds, for example, the more frames per second, the better your sort of chances is, especially if you're trying to spray and spray. Spray and spray, sorry. So say, for example, you know, a bird's about to land on a branch and you're trying to take photos of them. If your frames per second is five frames per second, you're only getting five, obviously, frames per second. Whereas if you have a camera like the R6 that can do 20, you're getting 15 more shots per second. So between those shots, you know, you've got more chance of actually nailing focus on those. So yeah, that's pretty much it. That's very straightforward, very self-explanatory. Exposure compensation is mainly if you're shooting in AV and TV, the auto mode. So say you're shooting in aperture priority. You have an aperture of f1.4 and you have a ISO of 100. Now your shutter speed will obviously automatically adjust to what it, the camera considers to be the most accurate exposure. But say you find that your lens or the camera tends to always overexpose the image. You could use exposure compensation and dial it into say minus one EV so that whatever, so say yeah, f1.4, ISO 100, it's telling you a shutter speed of ISO 1 and 1 100th of a second is the correct shutter speed. If you set that to minus 1 EV, then it'll be 1 200th of a second. If you shoot it to plus 1 EV, so it's overexposing, 1 1, it will change it to 1 one fiftieth of a second. So some people like to shoot in the auto modes and use exposure compensation as a faster method of doing that. What you choose, you know, I should manual, so I never really touch it, but it is definitely a good feature to have. JPEG or RAW, so, you know, age old thing, you would know JPEG, obviously a compressed format, RAW is an uncompressed format. If you shoot JPEG, your images are still edited. The images are just edited by the camera, not by you. And the camera doesn't know as well as you what the scene looked like. So it's best to go for RAW or do what I do. Shoot in JPEG and RAW, which is what I always do. And then if you, you know, feel like happy with the JPEG, just stick with that. But if you want to be able to edit it, you got the RAW there, which is, you know, what you should be doing anyway, in my opinion. So with your memory card, so, or storage, so you got usually UHS-1, UHS-2 or CF-Express. 
depending on how fast your camera is and what you're shooting, a lot of the more budget cameras will generally be UHS-1 only, which is just pretty much it goes by speeds. UHS-1 is the slowest, UHS-2 is much faster for your SD cards, and CF Express more ex much more expensive, but the fastest you'll get. Stuff like the rear screen, if it's fully articulating, personally, I think for stills, it's an excellent thing to have. A lot of people prefer tilt only. That one's very straightforward. Same as an optical viewfinder. Obviously, it's more only some Fuji cameras, I believe, have it, but it's more of a DSLR thing where, you know, you're seeing exactly what you see with your eyes just through the viewfinder, whereas the EVF, you're essentially seeing an LCD screen that's showing you the exposure, just like the rear screen. One of the last ones is autofocus type. So obviously you have single or continuous. I've actually been over this in my episode of how to get sharper images tips. You technically, anything, if you're moving or if you're, unless the camera's on the tripod, if it's handheld, you should be in continuous focus. If it's on the tripod, single focus. Or if your subject's moving, continuous. Pretty much continuous majority of the time, unless both you, your camera, and the uh, subject are static, like a tripod, and you're shooting an object that doesn't move. Then you go single. Any other time, continuous. Then you got phase detection and contrast detection. So Majority of new, newer cameras, mirrorless cameras especially, use phase detection. It's only Panasonic, I believe, that use contrast. So contrast detection, it is considered the most accurate as the camera, what it does is it looks for contrast between edges and moves the focus motor until the contrast is the sharpest, which may be more accurate, but it's significantly more slower. If you have shot DSLRs in the past, stuff like your 6D, 5D Mark III, 5D Mark II, all those really older cameras, 60D, 550D, when you put it into live view and focus and it would jump back and forth for ages before we get the focus, that was contrast detection. Now you got phase detection, which was pretty much when you're shooting through a viewfinder on DSLR or on your R6 and any newer mirrorless camera that isn't Panasonic. What it does, it works by splitting the light, entering the lens into two, so that it forms two images. Now based on the difference in the focus point position between the two images, the camera calculates the required direction towards the camera or away from the camera and the amount, which is the distance, to move the lens in order to achieve focus and move the lens accordingly. Phase detection AF enables autofocus established swiftly since the camera knows exactly how much in which direction to move the focusing lens. However, this form of AF requires a dedicated AF sensor along with a mechanism that separates light between the AF sensor and the image sensor which converts light entering to the, into an image. This makes it difficult to make the camera body compact. Generally, your phase detection will have a separate part of the sensor. So you've got the actual image sensor, then you have your AF sensor, which is what controls the phase detection. It's a lot more complicated to explain. I personally still don't understand it fully, but all I know is it's a lot faster and it can be honestly very accurate. If you look at stuff like IAF, you know, that's obviously part of phase detection. It's very fast, very accurate. All the tracking on the newer cameras, all phase detection, much better to go for rather than contrast. And the last is a built-in flash. Honestly, the main feature I could see for having a built-in flash is just to trigger speed lights if you're using all the same branded ones, but otherwise they're not really needed. You get better results by using the flashes off camera and doing it that way. Well, that's a bit longer than I thought it would take to go through all that. And I'm actually, my throat is hurting, starting to lose my voice. So I think that's it for this episode. So once again, I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find them, you know, in the podcast history. And there's also links in the show notes to all the articles and previous episodes. Otherwise, you can go to thephotographyenthusiast.com. Next fortnight, I think will likely be another review since that's pretty much done. I just, yeah, didn't feel like I had the time to do it in a few days. 
get all the images ready, add in all the EXIF data, record the podcast. So yeah, that's why it's this episode now. Then we'll have another one soon. But otherwise, if you want to follow me, you can find me at photosbydowe.com. If you're into wrestling, you can follow me, mrmeowpuss.com, mrmeowpuss on Twitter, sorry. That one's all my, pretty much everything, gaming, wrestling, everything. Whereas if you want just my photography, which I honestly barely update because I haven't been shooting, photos by D. Lee on Twitter. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening. Appreciate you all. Reach out if you have any questions. Happy to chat, even if you just want to chat about photography. Take care and thank you. See ya.